Well, good morning, everybody. If we have not met, my name is Dave Tish, and I am with Westgate Church, and we are partnering with you guys, along with a couple of the churches in the Bay Area, to start a brand new sermon series in which we're going to be examining the life of Abraham, which I'm really excited about. Uh, I'm covering up the, the title of the book because, actually, I wrote it, which feels a little self-promoting, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but this book was, has been a labor of love uh, for me, and I want to just explain why I wrote the book, why it has been so important to me, and why I'm so excited to share it with all of you guys, um, because this has been um, a project that's like 18 months in the making. And so to explain why this story is so important to me, I want to start with some M&Ms. These are my M&Ms. They are mine. Do not try to, go ahead, try to take food from me. I dare you. A couple of days ago, last Saturday, actually last weekend, I woke my teenage son up. He was, he's 16, he's a junior in high school. And I said, hey son, I need your help. And he said, what do you need my help with? I said, I need you to help me count out 936 M&Ms. It's like, that's an awfully specific number. Why do you need that? And I said, do not question me, just do as I say. That is a great parenting technique for teenagers. They love that. They love being told what to do without any explanation. So we did. I'm, I'm just kidding. It's terrible. Uh, but we did it together. We counted out 936. And I said, okay, now I want you to count out for me 104. So he's like, okay. So we counted out 104. I, he's like, what are these, Dad? I said, well, son, when you and your sister were born, the minute you were born, we took you home from the hospital. We brought you home in your car seats, and you were there, and you were little. I had, and your mother and I had, about 936 weeks with you, from the time you were born to the time you turned 18 and graduate from high school. That's 936. That's how many weeks we had. Each of these M&Ms represents a single week. And now that you are a junior in high school, son, this is how many I have left with you. I got 104. That's it. Two years. And then you graduate. And my job shifts. It changes from being an air traffic controller. When you were little, I was an air traffic controller. I controlled everything, what you ate, where you went, who you hung out with. And now my job has shifted to being like a coach. Like I can't get in the game. I can give you some tips and we can look at the game film after the, the, the event, but I can't get on the court anymore. And I'm about to send you out into a world and a few years later after that, your sister out into a world. And it's a scary world. And it's confusing, and it's beautiful, and it's frightening, and it's awesome, and it's terrible all at the same time. And as you are launched into that, I just want you to be successful. And I don't mean successful in some sort of definition where you have a lot of money or have a good job or go to a good college. That stuff is not the measure of success I'm looking at. I'm looking at the biblical measure of success, which is I want you to be deeply connected in a relationship with a loving God through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. That's what I want for you. That's my measure. At, at our church, we have this threefold definition. We base everything that we do on it. And every church has some sort of variation on this. And we have this three little sentences we say. We, we want people to love God, love your neighbor, and then love one another. And if I'm honest, that's a great definition. That, that centers us. But if I'm honest, two of those make sense to me. They're measurable and actionable. Love your neighbor and love one another. Love one another. Are you in Christian community? Do you have Christian friends? Do you have Christian mentors? Are you tied? Are there, is there a group of people who truly know who you are and how you're doing 
and how you're doing with God and are helping point you to Jesus and get closer. I mean, that's Christian community. It's a binary question, yes or no. And then the question of love your neighbor. Are you actively working and using all the gifts that God's given you for the benefit of your community, for shalom, to bring goodness and compassion and justice into this world? That's, there's lots of opportunities that churches give for that. It's, it's pretty binary. It's measurable. It's actionable. But love God? That's a, that's a weird term. Love God? What, what, is that emotions? It's like the story of the Grinch. You know the story of the Grinch when they could measure his heart and it was three sizes too small or later on when they measured his heart and it was three sizes too big, it grew. Congratulations, Mrs. Kandinsky. Your heart has grown three sizes in your love for God. Like there's no device to measure it. And this is compounded by the fact that the the word love in the English language is so mushy. I, I mean, I love my mom and I love tacos. That's the same word. What? So what does it mean to love God? Now, we know that this is the preeminent thing. In the beginning of the story of the Bible, Moses is talking to the people of Israel, and he's trying to explain to them what the most important thing in the whole world is. And in Deuteronomy 6, and some of you are so familiar with this, but I'm just going to read it. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses says to the people this famous command, this sentence It's called the Shema. And it's in Deuteronomy 6. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now you're familiar with this because in the Gospels, in three separate Gospels, Jesus, when asked what the most important thing in the whole world is, what what is God most after, ratifies the Shema again. He re-Shema's things. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, what's the most important thing? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then in Luke 10, Jesus says the same thing. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What's written in the law? Jesus asked, how do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. And then in Mark 12, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So Jesus is ratifying these. I have a handy dandy chart here. We're supposed to love God according to Deuteronomy and Matthew and Luke and Mark with some sort of combination of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So this is preeminent. This is incredibly clear. But what does that mean to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do those words connect? Do they overlap? Is there some semantic range of difference that I'm supposed to understand what, how is a heart different than a soul, different than a, uh, and I think in general, what Jesus is getting at and what Moses is getting at, what the Bible is getting at is that we are supposed to love God with the entirety of our whole selves, everything that we are and everything that we have. 
But that still doesn't answer the question that I'm supposed to try to teach my own children. What does that mean? Hey, son. Hey, daughter. Love God with everything you have. Everything you are. Okay, dad. Like, it's hard, right? It's difficult. And this is where I think sometimes the Bible isn't as helpful as I wish it were. I, here's what I want the Bible to be. I want the Bible to be like an Ikea instruction manual. I want it to give me precise and detailed step-by-step instructions on what to do and what to say to help my son and my daughter and myself and everyone I know love God better. I want that to be an Ikea instruction manual with here's where to put that screw or that dowel rod and turn four times this way and then that's how you assemble the Hamburger Schmidt. That's what you do. I wish my children, when they were born, had a little zip tie connected to their ankle with an instruction manual wrapped in plastic. That would be fantastic, but we're not given that, are we? We're not. Now, in light of that, if I can't have an Ikea instruction manual, then at the very least, I would like God to give me a map. I want the Bible to be a map. Where to go, who to meet, how to meet the people, where to go, what to do, how to live. I want instructions. But if 2020, the past 18 months, have taught us anything, it's that we do not get a map. The world is unpredictable. It changes things we thought were going to happen don't. Things that we were pretty sure would never happen do. And that's just the way it goes. And if you doubt this, play fantasy football. Because everything will fall apart. I wish I had a map for my children to help them navigate through the difficult things. I wish I had a map so they could go around the bad parts of life, but I am not given a map for myself or for my children. I wish God were to give me that, but he does not. Instead, what the Bible does, what God gives us is a field guide. Now, a field guide is basically a list of general things that will help you, but you have to internalize the principles and determine when you need them and how. It might give you a a list of knots, Here's how to lash two sticks together to form a T or a crossbar. Now, there might be a situation where you will need this. Maybe not every day, but there will come a time. So here's something helpful. As you encounter it, use this. Or here's some animal tracks. It would be helpful for you to know what these animal tracks are. Some of them are helpful. Some of them are, hey, look, there's cougar tracks. Maybe you should run. That's hippopotamus tracks. Where are you? Why are there hippopotamus tracks near your tent? The point is, a field guide requires far more imagination. It requires far more of us, but the general principle is given to us. Now, here's where this is important. A couple of years ago, I actually entered into seminary. And as I was entering into seminary, my professor, Gary Brashears, this is a picture of us. This is Gary and I he actually started walking our whole cohort through the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And as he walked through it, I realized, wait a second, this is exactly what I need. Abraham's life showed me through the high points and through the low points, what it means to love God, what it means to live life with God. If you're familiar in the New Testament, Abraham is held up as a hall of fame in the faith. 
He is held up as a person who is in the hall of fame of people who lived life with God and did it well. Did he do it perfectly? No, he did not, but he did it well. And as Gary was walking through the life of Abraham with our class, I realized this is it. This is exactly what I have needed, not only for my children to help them give them an actionable, measurable, quantifiable way, a diagnostic for their own hearts and lives to know if they're loving God well, not just for my children, but for myself as well. So I'm going to share with you, and that's what we're going to do for the next several weeks. We're going to walk through the life of Abraham. There are four main points, high points in his life. We're going to walk through those four main moments in his life and then walk through the four main lessons that Abraham's life teaches us. And in the process, we're going to learn how to live life better and love God better with God. And so those four main moments, we're going to spend about two weeks on each moment, two weeks on each lesson. But for right now, I'm just going to go through these four, just to give you an overview of the series and where we're headed. So the first moment is what I call the call. The call is this moment in Genesis 12, when God interrupts Abraham's life. Abraham was living in Mesopotamia. He was living in ancient land called Ur, which was ruled by these people called the Chaldeans, who were a people who centered their entire civilization around lunar worship, the worship of the moon. And Abraham is in the middle of this, and he is worshiping lunar gods. Now, this is particularly tragic because he is from the lineage of the family of Noah that had been rescued several chapters earlier by God himself, Yahweh, the creator God from a very tragic situation where all the earth had turned away from God except for Noah and his family. And so God rescues them in this ark. And so Abraham is of the lineage of Noah. He's of the lineage. He is the family that knew of Yahweh, the creator God. And yet he is worshiping moon idols. His father names his children basically after these, these lunar idols, which would be like a, being a Chicago Bears fan and moving to Green Bay and naming your children Favre and Rogers. It would be tragic. That is the second football reference I've made. I will stop now, no more. So in Genesis 12, this is what the text says. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abraham built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, this is an incredibly inspiring text to me because in a land filled with idols in Canaan, the primary God they worship was this God, Baal. And you would expect Abraham, when he entered into this foreign land with foreign gods, to make an altar and make an altar to the foreign gods. That was what you did when you entered to a foreign land with foreign gods. You would expect Abraham to make an altar to Baal, but he does not. He makes an altar to Yahweh, the creator God, the God who had appeared to him and called him to this land. And here's why this is inspiring to me, because I also, and so do you, we live in a land filled with idols that pull for our hearts allegiance and affection. And so the first lesson that we learn from Abraham is an important one, to be loyal and committed to Yahweh, even if it costs you, even in the land of Baal, even if no one else 
is doing it. I want to be the kind of person like Abraham who is loyal and committed to God above all else. I want to examine my heart so if there is anything in my heart, anything in my life that is pulling on my allegiance to get me away from loyalty and allegiance to Yahweh, the creator God, I want to examine that and get it out of my life. If I'm going to build an altar, I want it to be to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And so that's the first lesson. The second lesson is this. It's found also in Genesis 12, when God promises Abraham a child. Now this is impossible because his wife, Sarah, is barren. She cannot have children. How will this be? And in Genesis 12, this is what we, we hear. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to leave everything that you've known, all your safety, security measures, all of your family, everything that you know, and go to this land I will show you. And this is terrible. Imagine if God showed up to you and said, I want you to move. You'd be like, yes, Lord. But what's the very next question you would ask God? If he came to you and said, I want you to pick up your family and move. What's the next question? It wouldn't be why, it would be where? Where are we headed? Why would you ask God that question? Because you want to make sure it's a place that you want to go. Because if God's like, I want you to pack up and go where? And he'd be like, Bali. You're like, yes, I'm in God. I'm in with you and me and Bali. But if he's like, I want you to go to Fresno, you'd be like, no, Fres, heck no. I am not going. I heard wrong. You must have spoken wrong. I'm not going to Fresno. No, all apologies to people who live in Fresno. I'm sure it's lovely this time of year. That's a lie. I lied on camera. It's not lovely this time of year. It's terrible this time of year. It's, it's like living on the sun. It's, the point is, you and I want to maintain control of our lives. You and I want to be in control. We want to be in the driver's seat. And what God is asking of Abraham is to let God drive. Go to the land I will show you requires incredible trust. And I want to be the kind of person who trusts God, not just trusts him, but hands over the whole of my life and says, God, whatever you want, not my will, but yours be done. I want to be the kind of person who treats God like a steering wheel, not just my spare tire. That's what I most want. And Abraham models that. That's the second lesson, that we trust God even if it doesn't make sense, even if we don't have all the information, that we trust God and we consult with him and that, that he's the one who drives our lives, not us. The third story is a very difficult and tragic story. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of this city that descends into moral wickedness. This is how the story tells it in Genesis 18. So Abraham is camped up his his camp where he lives is on this mountain that overlooks the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And one day God shows up with two angels, two bodyguards. God doesn't need bodyguards. They're like travel companions. He shows up with them. And this is what God says. This is what it says in Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 
Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised to him. And then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So many things that are going on in this passage. The first that I want to point out is that an outcry against terrible injustice and oppression has reached the very ears of God. He listens and he hears. This is such good news. But that's not the end of the good news. It's also true that God not only hears this outcry, but he comes down and gets involved. He is going to investigate personally and do something about this grievous sin and this oppression and injustice. Now, what's incredible here is also what God says about Abraham. He says that he wants him, he's chosen him to keep the way of the Lord. And then there's this phrase, by doing what is right and what is just. And that little phrase is the Hebrew phrase, siddakah and mishpat, justice and righteousness. Abraham has a moral character and it matches the moral character of God. Or put another way, God has a moral character and he wants Abraham to have the same moral character that he does, to do what is right. And so this is the third lesson that we are people. To love God means that we look like him, that we seek justice. We love what's right, we do what's right, and we set things right because that's what God would do. And that's what God would have us do. In a real world filled with real injustice, I wanna be the kind of person who listens and hears the outcry, that I'm not blind or inoculated or that I'm not too sated in my own comfort to listen to the outcries, that I somehow hear them and then partner with God to bring about goodness and peace and shalom and justice in this world that is crying out for it. Why? Because that's what God does. And then finally, and this is the final point in Abraham's life, the final kind of mountaintop experience. And this one is terrible as well. This is the story. Sometimes it's called the test. Sometimes in Jewish circles, it's called the binding because it's the story of the moment when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, on a mountain. And in this, we find this story in Genesis chapter 22. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. This moment, this story in Genesis 22 is horrific. In this moment, Abraham's life comes unraveled. 
the God who promised him a son, the God who promised him over decades that he would have a son and that son would grow into a lineage and that lineage would bless all the ends of the earth, has now told Abraham to kill his son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac. What is Abraham to do with this information? In this moment, Abraham has a series of questions that must have entered his heart and his mind. Oh, I, I thought you were good. I thought you made a promise to me that I'd have a son, and now you're going to take that away? Was I unclear? Did I hear you wrong when you promised me a son? And I thought you were different than all the ancient gods. All the ancient gods are cruel and malicious and capricious. They change their minds and they demand human sacrifice. I thought you were different. I thought you were a different God. And I thought you held this world together. I thought you held my world together. And now that the tragedy and the suffering of life has come and all the, all the universe has come ripped open, I guess now I know who you truly are. And you're not good. And you're not who I thought. And Abraham resists all those thoughts. And he says resolutely, I don't know how, but the Lord will provide somehow on this mountain. And this is the final lesson. When life falls apart, and it will fall apart, we expect God to be good, even when life falls apart. Even if we can't possibly imagine how the outcome could be good, we trust that somehow God will provide. And this is a great hope because life will fall apart. And I wish it weren't so. I wish I could give everyone who's listening a pass. I wish I could just have you have your life be up and to the right. Nothing but joy and peace being surrounded by laughter. All that is your life, but that's not life. There will come a moment when life will fall apart for you and for me. And we will be needed to be, we will need to be reminded of the very refrain that Abraham said on that mountain. I don't know how, but somehow the Lord will provide. Abraham was convinced that somehow, even in the midst of what looked to be death, that God could somehow bring life. He was convinced of that. And that's a model for us. And that brings us to the final point, which is the idea of a model. And that's Abraham models imperfectly what Jesus models perfectly. Think about Jesus for just a second. I'm going to go through those four lessons. Think about Jesus in relation to these four lessons. Was Jesus loyal to King Yahweh? Was he loyal to his father above all other gods? Did Jesus trust his father even when it didn't make sense? Think about that moment in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Did Jesus seek justice? Did he love what was right, do what's right, and set things right? Jesus' story, the stories of Jesus in the Gospels are filled with him setting things right. And then lastly, Jesus himself is the provision of the lamb. He's literally the provision. So put another way, Abraham models imperfectly what Jesus models perfectly. That's what we're going to be going through. Now, the book might be a helpful companion. They're, they're for sale out in, in the lobby. You can, you can pick these up. This might be a help. But for the next 
several weeks, we're going to be going through these lessons of Abraham. And the goal is to just study this incredibly important passage of Scripture that we might become people who love God well. And, and for the past year and a half, this life of Abraham has provided me with a diagnostic, a way for me to say to myself, is there any place in my life that these four questions, these four examples, these four lessons from the life of Abraham are challenging my own life? Is there a place where I've put something above God? Am I showing my allegiance to something more than God? Is there a place where I'm not trusting God? Trust for me shows up when I'm not trusting God. It shows up when I'm afraid. So every time I have fear, I know something's up, Dave. Something's up. You're not trusting. Am I a person who hears the outcry of injustice in the world and then does something about it? Now, I can't fix everything, but I can do something. Am I a person who's motivated to work for the shalom and peace and show compassion to a broken and hurting world because that's what God would do? And then lastly, when, God, when life falls apart, and it hasn't fallen apart for me, but just in the last 18 months, I have had friends and family members and people I love whose lives have in essence fallen apart. And I've gotten the chance to say, look, I don't know how God's going to put this back together. I don't. I can't even imagine how a good ending could come out. But I know for a fact that Jesus went into a dead end called death. And with God, dead ends suddenly aren't so dead. God can bring life even in death. So this has been a diagnostic for me. And even as you prepare to enter into this sermon series for the next several weeks, perhaps there's one of these four questions, these four life lessons of Abraham that's being stirred up in your heart, in your soul. Maybe God's inviting you into that, just as he's inviting all of us into these, this fourfold way of what it means to love God. And here's why this is important. Because God deserves us to love him well because he has loved us well. Now, here's the dirty secret. This book is not about Abraham. It's actually about God. We are loyal and committed to God because he's loyal and committed to us first. We trust him because he has proven himself to be trustworthy. We do justice because he is a God who is incredibly just. He brings goodness and compassion and moves with grace into the world. And we expect God to be good because he has proved it. And he proved it by giving his son and Jesus willingly walking up to the, to the mount on Golgotha onto the cross. That's what Jesus does for us. And God proves his goodness in that. So really, this is a sermon series about God and how we can respond to the love that God's already shown us. So as we enter into this, it's my prayer that this would be really a fruitful time. So let me just close in prayer. And as we do, just think about those four lessons. Loyal, even if it costs you, even in the land of Baal, trusting God, even if it doesn't make sense, being a person who seeks justice, who does what's right, who loves what's right, and who helps set things right, and a person who believes that God is good even when life falls apart. Which one of those is God inviting you into? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the example that you set perfectly. And thank you for scripture and thank you for the story of Abraham that we can read about a person, a human being who did life with you. He didn't do it perfectly, but there were so many things he did get right and we can learn from him. I pray that in the coming weeks, in the coming months, that you would grow us to be more mature, 
to love you better and love you more, that you would help us grow up in the faith and that we would use Abraham as an example, but that we would use your power and your spirit to help us grow. And even now, those four lessons from Abraham's life, I pray that you would begin speaking to us and inviting us and speaking into our lives the things that you want to grow in us. And I'm so grateful that you do not leave us, but that you promise to bring the good work which you have started to completion. That is our hope. You do not abandon us. You do not leave us. Your spirit is with us. Help us become more like you, that we might love you well, God, because you deserve to be loved well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks.